Take a moment. Well, good. I want to do a little math quiz for a couple of you people. Let's see how intelligent you were in high school math. Maybe elementary school math. There are there were there were five see maybe some of you heard this. There were five turtles on the log. Three of them decided to jump. How many turtles are left on the log? See there's five left on the log. Uh, because there were five turtles on a log, three decided to jump, but they never jumped. <laughs> and um, you may have heard that recently, but uh, it's not enough just to make a decision. Now, here's my question. How many of you decided to walk all nine flights of uh, stairs up here? Let me see the hands. Anybody? Who decided to do that? You decided to do that. I knew you. I decided to do that, too. <laughs> I didn't do that. <laughs> How many would come back if uh, we were guaranteed a full breakfast? <laughs> How many would come back if uh, I could guarantee you there would be big bright lights shining in your eyes? Anybody? Yeah. Yeah. You would come back for that one. I just want to know one thing. Are you Dr. Street? <laughs> 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 she didn't realize who I was because of the bright lights. Okay. Um, yes, for some of you, this is the first time you've seen me, isn't it? Because the bright lights have been yours. Okay, we are in Luke chapter 11. So let's take our Bible and open up to Luke chapter 11. And let me remind you that the beginning of this chapter, the first half of the chapter, deals with prayer. Luke tells us about the Lord's Prayer, and then Jesus teaches on prayer. And now, uh, Luke is going to jump from Jesus teaching on prayer to Jesus casting out a demon. Okay? He's not going to give us a lot of detail about how he does it. We've seen Jesus cast out demons before, so Luke figures that in your mind you know how it's done. So he's just going to mention it. Okay? And we're going to look at Luke chapter 11. Getting at verse 14. Now, what we have in verses 14 through 16 is the scene, the events that take place. So let me just read those to you. Luke 11, verses 14 through 16. Jesus was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was, when the demon had gone out, that the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. Others testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. Now from these verses, we are going to realize that after Jesus cast the demon out, there are three reactions. Three reactions to him casting the demon out. Reaction number one is found at the end of verse 14. It says some people marvel. The multitudes marvel. The second reaction is found in verse 15. Some said he cast out demons by Beelzebub. So the first reaction in verse 14 is that the people are amazed. They're astonished at him casting a demon out. But notice the reaction in verse 15. <coughs> It's an accusation. Ah, he cast the demon out, but they accused him of casting the demon out by Beelzebub. That's the second reaction. There's a third reaction. 
Look in verse 16. Others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. They said, well, if you really did this from God and not Beelzebub, prove it. <coughs> prove it. Three reactions. Amazement, accusation, and apprehension. Ah, we're not sure, so we're a little apprehensive. Prove it. Give us a sign. Three reactions. In response to those reactions, Jesus gives three answers. Okay? In verses 17 through 26, he will answer the accus accusation. He cast out demons by Beelzebub. In verses 27 and 28, he will respond to the group that was amazed, who marveled. He gives a response to that group. And then in verses 29 through 36, he responds to the group who were apprehensive and they said they wanted a sign. Okay, so we have three reactions and three responses. We'll look at two of those uh, responses from Jesus today. So let's look at the setting. Let's look at verse 14. That's going to be our outline. Here's how we're going to handle it. First, the setting. And he, that's Jesus, was casting out a demon, and it was mute. Demons have specialties, just like you have specialties. Some of you are artistic, some of you have mechanical uh, abilities, some of you are talented in math. I could tell there was at least one here that was talented in math. And demons have specialties, and some demons impair people's speech. And that's what this demon has done. It has impaired the people's speech. Now, this person who has this demon, once the demon comes into this person whom we will assume was born normal, becomes marginalized. That's what demons do. That's what Satan wants to do. He wants to marginalize you. And this person, therefore, becomes what we call today handicapped and they can't speak. New Testament calls them mute. Now, there's three ways that people become mute. Three causes or sources of muteness. Number one, physical. Something happens to you and you simply cannot speak. Psychological. Psychological. You're in a terrible storm and the storm frightens you and there's a bolt of lightning and you wake up and you start to cry out and you go, ah, and nothing comes out. It's psychological, it happens. But there's a third reason that people can lose their speech, and that is spiritual, a demonic influence. And that's what happened to this person who's not even named. We don't even know if it was an adult or whether it was a child. So in the middle of verse 14 says, And so it was, when the demon had gone out, Jesus cast the demon out, the mute spoke. No details. Just the bottom line. Instantly, just like that, the person can speak. Now we have the first reaction. Reaction number one at the end of verse 14. And the multitudes marveled. This is the reaction from the crowd. The majority of the people, when they saw this happen, and here's this person who hadn't spoken for years, suddenly speaks. The reaction was... And they're astonished. It is a reaction of amazement. If we could put it in one word, they said, wow. Okay? The reaction of the multitudes. Now, 
I want you to look at the reaction of the second group. Look at verse 15. But, not everyone was amazed. You see that? But some of them, notice 14 multitudes, now we have a minority. Some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Now, notice that reaction, accusation. The first reaction was positive. They marveled. Ooh. This reaction is negative. They accuse. If the first reaction, if we would label the first reaction, wow, we'll label this one how. How did he do it? Ah, oh, we know how he did it. He cast out demons by, by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. Now, that word Beelzebub is simply another name for Satan. So it's, that's all it means. It means Satan. Now, notice something about this. In the end of verse 14, 15, it says he is the ruler of demons. If Satan is a ruler, that means he has a domain over which he rules. He has a kingdom. And if you have a ruler, you have servants. And the servants are called demons. He's the ruler of demons. Satan has a kingdom, and he has people who serve him. So what these critics are saying is not that Jesus hasn't performed a miracle. They recognize it as a miracle. Uh, their criticism is the source of the miracle. And they say that source is Satan. How many times have you seen somebody, maybe a so-called miracle healer, and what people claim they were healed, and your initial reaction is, ah, they're an agent of the devil. Well, that's what these people were saying. The source of his healing, the authority for his healing, is Satan. Now, if Jesus is healing by Satan... That means, by necessity, he's not from God. He does not represent God. That means what he says does not represent God. That means that Jesus is a false prophet. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to marginalize Jesus. So that's the second reaction. Well and how. Now, third reaction, verse 16. Others, there was still another group, testing him. Well, how do we know he's from God, how do we know he's from Satan? Wanting to find out, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. Prove it. And do it now. They want proof now. So you have the well, you have the how, and you have the now. And they want this sign right now. Okay? So now what we have is Jesus' response. We have the three criticisms, the three reactions, and now we have Jesus' response. But he's going to respond in a different order. First, he's going to respond to the accusers. Then he's going to respond to those who are astonished. And then he's going to respond to those who want to sign. So let's look at how he responds. First of all, it says in verse 17, But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, He knew their motives. He knew why each group responded the way they did. Every time you respond to something, you respond for a certain reason. When you came into this room, you responded. Some of you said, oh, I don't like this place. Some of you said, I like this place. Some of you said, well, I don't know whether we should be here or not. <laughs> now, if I were Jesus, I'd know why you said those things. But I don't. 
I have no idea why you would say one of those three responses. So Jesus, however, knows the motive of why they say things. And so now he reacts to them. Okay? Now watch how he reacts to the group that accuses him. It says that he cast out demons by Beelzebub. Look at verse 17. His first argument or response to them is what you're saying is illogical. Your accusation that I cast out demons by Beelzebub is illogical. Look what he said. Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And a house divided against itself falls. In other words, why would Satan cast out demons? He'd be casting out his own servants. That doesn't make sense. That's illogical. See that? That's illogical. So that's how Jesus says you're not thinking straightly. That would be self-destructive. That would be Satan casting, starting a civil war against himself. His enemy isn't himself. His enemy is God. So what you're saying there is basically illogical. And he goes on to say in verse 18, if Satan is divided against himself, well, how, was he, how will his kingdom stand? And the answer is what? It won't stand. Look, when our nation was divided against itself in the Civil War, we nearly didn't stand. It took us, we're still, we are still recuperating from the Civil War. A hundred and some years later, still recuperating. Not as bad as it was, you know, at the end of the 1860s, but we're still recuperating. And we nearly were destroyed. And so Jesus says, well, if Satan's divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Notice Satan has a kingdom right there. Now what he does, he's going to argue a second thing against this accusation. First, it's illogical. What you're saying doesn't make sense. Second of all, it's inconsistent. Your argument is inconsistent. Because look what he says. He says, because... He says, if Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Satan. Now, here's the second argument. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, if I'm doing what you're saying, by whom do your sons cast them out? See, Jesus wasn't the only exorcist. There were a lot of Jewish exorcists traveling the country casting out demons preaching and casting out demons. And notice what he says in verse 18. He said, or verse 19, by whom do what? Your sons cast them out. Well, what would they say? Well, our sons cast out demons by the power of what? God. Yeah, that's what we, you know, God's on our side. But you said, well, then how can you say that I'm casting out demons by Satan? That's inconsistent. See? If they're casting them out by God, then logic and consistency would say I'm casting them out by God. If you say I'm casting them out by Beelzebub, then you need to say your own sons are casting them out by Beelzebub. You can't have it both ways. You have to be consistent. And since you believe your sons are casting them out by God, and I do, and he says, but you don't accept that, see? Therefore, he says at the end of verse 19, they will be your judges. 
On Judgment Day, everything will come out in the wash, and it will be discovered that we're both doing it by God, and therefore you will be judged for that. Now look at verse 20. But if I cast out demons, now watch, now he's going to tell, he's going to identify how he does this. If I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now notice that phrase, finger of God. That's a very important phrase because it's traced all the way back to the book of Exodus when Moses performs miracles in front of Pharaoh's magicians. Remember when he was doing all those miracles? Now I want you to mark this spot and I want you to go back to Exodus chapter 8. I want to show you something that's very interesting. A number of months ago, we may have looked at this verse, but we need to revisit it just for a second. Because Jesus says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, not by Beelzebub, but by the finger of God. Those people standing there would have had an image in their mind immediately of an event that took place in the past. It's found in Exodus chapter 8. Look at verse 16. Exodus 8 and verse 16. Now this is Moses confronting the magicians of Egypt. And so the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And so they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod, and he struck the dust of the earth, and it became lice on men and beasts. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now the magicians, that's Pharaoh's magicians, so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice on men and beasts. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This... Watch this. Is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. So Jesus is doing this by the finger of God, and these people are not accepting it. That's why they will be judged in that great day. Their hearts have been hardened, and they will be judged for that. So Jesus says that he's doing it by the finger of God. The implication is that Jesus is a second Moses. Jesus has come to set the captives free. Remember Luke chapter 4 and verse 18? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to set the captives free. Jesus has come to set the captives free. And he's like a second Moses. Now go back to Luke chapter 11. Because Jesus operates by the finger of God, and this has an implication. Look what the implication is. If I cast out demons with the finger of God, then what is the bottom line? Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God has come upon you. Look at that. The kingdom of God has arrived already. You don't need to be looking for the kingdom of God way out there in the future. The kingdom of God, in some sense, has already arrived. When the kingdom comes, the prophet said, the captives would be set free. And all the enemies of God would be destroyed. Here's Jesus is destroying the enemies of God. 
He's casting demons out. He's setting people free. And in some sense, the kingdom of God has come already. Now, let me just say this. Some of you will notice in verse 20 that you have a cross-reference. And that cross-reference is to Matthew chapter 12, I think, in like verse 28 or something like that. Does anybody have a cross-reference like that? 25. Huh? What is it? 12, 20-something? 29. Now, we're not going to turn there, but I want to tell you how Matthew tells the story. Jesus cast out demons, he's accused, and he says this. If I cast out demons, in Matthew it doesn't say by the finger of God. He said, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Because where the Holy Spirit is, that's where the kingdom is. Now, you have to understand the context. If you were here last week, remember the last verse? The very last verse that we read last week? Verse 13? The Father will give what? The Holy Spirit to anyone who what? Ask him. Jesus has been anointed with the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God has come. All these miracles are being done. And so Jesus is basically saying that the kingdom of God is here. This is the bottom line. Now to drive this point home, that he's not casting out demons by Satan, but by God, he gives an illustration. Now look at verse 21. And he's going to give us what we call an allegory. That is an illustrative lesson. Okay? And here is the allegory. Look at verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own castle or palace or house, his goods are in peace. They're safe. They're secure. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overwhelms him, he takes from him all of his armor in which he trusted, and he, the stronger man, divides his spoils. Now, you read that and you say, what in the world is that about? Well, that's an allegory. And each one of these people or figures in this allegory represents something. In verse 21, there's a strong man. That's Satan. In this allegory, that's Satan. There's a strong man. That's Satan. Okay? Then you see in verse 21, a man who guards a palace. That palace is the person who's demon-possessed in this allegory. You'll see how this works out. The strong man is who? Satan. The palace is the person who's demon-possessed. Okay? And then in the next verse, one comes along who's stronger, and that's Jesus. That's Jesus. And he defeats the strong man. So, when you see that allegory and how Jesus is going to explain it in a moment, you'll discover that Jesus is saying, I'm not subserving it to Satan. I'm not an agent of Satan. Satan's subservient to me. I'm stronger than Satan. So he's just wiping out their argument, and that's what he's trying to do here. Now look at verse 23. Look what Jesus says. He who is not with me is against me. If you're not loyal to Christ, if you're not with Christ, then you are against Christ. Now, these people who are making the accusations are against Christ. And that's just basically what he's saying. 
And then look what he says in verse 23. He who does not gather with me scatters. Either you will do what Jesus does, and Jesus is going, and guess what he's doing? He's gathering people into the kingdom. He's bringing people to himself. He's bringing people into allegiance to himself. If you're not doing that and bringing people to Christ, drawing them to Jesus, then guess what you're doing? You're scattering them. You're driving them away from Christ. So Jesus is basically talking about loyalty to him versus disloyalty to him. Either you bring people to Christ or you don't bring people to Christ. Now here's the thing. Jesus has cast out this demon from this man, and the man is exercised. The demon has gone out. The man has been free. But it's not enough that the person is free. The accusers know the man's demon is gone. Would you agree with that? They know that he's free. But guess what? It's not enough that he's free. Guess what you have to do? You have to now gather him to Jesus. You have to bring him to Jesus. What are they trying to do? Accuse Jesus, therefore, getting the man not to give his loyalty to Jesus, but they're trying to drive the man away from Jesus. You see? So it's not enough just to have a demon taken out of you. That just leaves you empty. You need to align yourself and give your allegiance to Jesus. You need to have something fill you. To take the demon's place. What was the last verse that we read last week? If a father, being evil, knows how to give good gifts to his children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? It's not enough to have the demon taken out. You need to have God's indwelling Spirit reside within you. Now that's what he's saying, and here's how you know that's the truth. Because look what he says in verse 24. When an unclean spirit goes out, that's the demon of a man. See, he's not talking about a palace or a house. He's talking about a man. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, that spirit goes through the dry places, the desert places, seeking rest. Never finds rest. Demons are meant to indwell people, and they're out there in the wilderness seeking rest, and they find none. And he says, I will return to my house. I'll return to that person in whom I lived. Look at that. I will return to my house from where I came. And when he comes in that man's empty house, that man's body, he finds it swept and put in order. Here's a guy sitting clothed and in his right mind. Everything seems to be okay, but guess what? Inside of him, he's what? Empty. So then look what he does. Verse 26. Then he goes and he takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And they enter and they dwell right in that man's body. So that the last state of that man is worse than the first state. Isn't it interesting when it talks about Mary Magdalene and said she was a woman out of whom Jesus cast seven devils? Did you ever wonder, well, how did she get seven in there? Probably just started off with one. One of these Jewish exorcists, one of these guy's sons, probably cast a demon out of her. But guess what? All she was left was empty. 
So the demon says, ah, let me go get some friends. Come back. Woman ends up with seven demons. Some people end up with 15. Some people end up with 10. Some end up with six. So exorcism without evangelism is not enough. You can cast demons out of people all you want, but that's not a solution. They not only have to be freed of the demons, they have to be filled with the Spirit. They have to align themselves with the kingdom of God. Notice what you have is a clash of kingdoms. There's Satan, the ruler of demons, and he has his kingdom, that one verse says. It actually uses the word kingdom. Satan's kingdom is divided against itself, he would say. Satan has a kingdom. And Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God or the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God's come upon you. We have a clash here of two kingdoms. And there are psychologists and there are doctors and there are non-Christian exorcists and they can do a lot of things to help people, but it doesn't ultimately solve their problem. Because the person needs to have the indwelling Holy Spirit. When we preach the gospel and a person commits their life to Christ, the Spirit of God comes in and they're born again. That's why Christian exorcism is superior to Jewish exorcism. <laughs> so exorcism without evangelism is not enough. Now that's how Jesus responds to his accusers. Okay? That's group number one. Now how does he respond to the group that is amazed? Remember back in verse 14? It said the multitudes marveled. And now look at verse 27. So now he's going to respond to that. Luke says, and it happened as he spoke these things, a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed be the womb that bore you. Look how exciting she is over this exorcism. She's just starting to go wild. What exuberance. Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that nursed you. She's so excited she blesses Mary. Never met Mary, but she blesses Mary. Um, you know, it's very interesting that uh, if you ever have a child that's done something great or you've done something sort of unusual, and uh, I remember when I was young, I was a young preacher, 20 couple years old, wasn't married yet, uh, starting to preach, uh, did all evangelistic preaching, preached like Billy Graham, you know, and all that nonsense. <laughs> but I was able to communicate. I was able to communicate. Well, I remember one day, uh, I brought my family to the church. And people came up to my mother and she sa they said to her, Oh, you must be so proud to have a son like this, such a nice young man like this. And my mother said, I wish those people would get away from me. <laughs> um, this is what is, this woman's so excited over what Jesus has done that, that uh, she said, oh, your mother must be so lucky to have a son like you. That's how exuberant she is. That's how excited she is. But guess what? Jesus gets absolutely no status to that amazement and that marvel and that enthusiasm. <laughs> Look what he says in verse 28. But he said, now that's what she said. Oh, wonderful healer, exorcist, and the mother who bore you. But he said, more than that, blessed are they who 
Hear the word of God and keep it. Have we seen that theme throughout Luke? That is the theme that Luke is hammering home. That's the theme that the pastor's been hammering home. Getting excited? Hey, that's good. Professing faith in Christ? Well, that's good. Walking in awe? Well, that's good. But what really counts is obedience. <laughs> Keeping the word. <laughs> Doing the word. So that's how Jesus answers those who are excited. So, this is why I'm so glad that the pastor says this nearly in every sermon. Every week we see on the screens those people who've walked an aisle and professed faith in Christ, and we all say, Amen! And that's why every week in these sermons the pastor has to remind us, that's great, but guess what? God requires you to be obedient. Do the work. That's Jesus' response to these people. Now, the third response is to, back in verse 16, what did they say? Prove it. Give us a what? Sign. Do it now. Now look how Jesus responds to them. Look at verse 29, the third group. And while the crowd were thickly together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. And that's where we'll pick up next week. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, our initial reactions often are wrong. They are often short-sighted, they're often illogical, they're often inconsistent, they're often enthusiastic, they're often skeptical. Lord, help us to weigh our evaluations of situations. Help us to realize uh, that what Jesus says, how he evaluates and responds to situations is the way we should respond. Help us to realize, Lord, that it is important that we gather people to Christ. We call people to give their allegiance, not just make professions. We call them to be obedient. We call them to put their faith in and not ask for proof. Lord, help us to respond to all the reactions that are around us when the gospel is preached the way Jesus did. Oh, we thank you for this opportunity this morning to gather here in this room and uh, sing your praises and to hear your word and to have fellowship. And we thank you for those who provided the food. And now, Lord, help us to go out and be obedient to the word. Help us to be disciples. 